welcome everyone and thank you nolan for joining us uh yeah, before, thanks. thanks for having me before we kind of get nolan going i think i'll i'll start off with giving a bit of an introduction on myself and introduce a thesis on sandstorm and then kind of get nolan to kind of give us all the all the all the details so uh, my name is Bilkar Sivia. I run White Falcon Capital. Uh, we are a long-only investment manager with a mandate to invest bottom-up and compound capital on a risk-adjusted basis. Uh, we align with our partners and charge no management fee, but only an incentive fee of 15% with a high watermark. Uh, I have about 15 years of investment experience. And before founding White Falcon, I worked at uh, Burgundy Asset Management as a vice president and investment analyst, uh, which is a global investment manager with $30 billion in AUM. Uh, the idea we are presenting today is Sandstorm Gold Royalties. Uh, the company happens to be in the precious metal sector, but I think investors can be agnostic to the price of gold and still find value in Sandstorm. Uh, we believe it's a high quality company that has many levers of value creation and potential upside. Um, before we really get into the call, I'll just kind of briefly go through my thesis because I know that there, there will be people on the call that that are not familiar with the company. So I'll kind of briefly kind of talk about Sandstorm from my perspective, and then we'll get Nolan to uh, to talk about it a bit more. Uh, first, uh, Sandstorm is a high quality business that owns royalties and streams on 250 mines around the world, out of which 40 are currently cash flow generating for Sandstorm. Uh, we know that royalty companies are high quality businesses that compound capital in good times and bad. Um, you know, Texas Pacific land uh, in oil and gas, Franco Nevada and precious metals have been prof uh, prominent uh, examples. Uh, second, uh, Sandstrom has the highest growth profile amongst its peers. So its volumes should grow by 30% over the next three years. Uh, third, Sandstrom is highly free cash flow generated and using all or most of its cash flow to pay down debt. Uh, fourth, uh, Sandstorm trades at a large discount compared to its peers, uh, which themselves, I believe, are trading at you know, the lower end of their historical trading ranges. Now, there are reasons for this, and we'll go through this in the call, but you know, I think it's worth highlighting that you're getting a big kind of relative discount play here. So from a bottom-up perspective, even if gold prices remain at current levels, we believe investors have a potential 60% return from these levels on Sandstorm. Uh, and, and, you know, and this is a combination of volume growth, debt pay down, and a normalization of multiples. Now, if you believe in gold like I do, uh, and, you know, and, and there are investors that are kind of across the spectrum on this, uh, then an investment in Sandstorm has a lot of upside. Right? And I believe royalty companies are one of the best ways to express an opinion on gold. And within these, Sandstorm has the best risk reward. So we'll, you know, we'll talk about gold and the price of gold a little bit later in the call. But I think what I wanted to do was just explore uh, Sandstorm as a bottom-up idea. Just you know, even people that are agnostic to gold should find value here. So you know, who better to explain the business than the, you know, than the CEO, uh, Nolan Watson, uh, thanks again for for joining us on this call. Um, I think you know I'll I'll just ask you um, some questions. Uh, but you know before we do kind of get into the Q and A, why don't you just briefly introduce yourself, introduce Sandstorm. You know, tell us a bit more about the company. Yeah, no, appreciate the background. Um, 
So I guess a bit about me, which will lead into a bit about the company. I'm a um, business person by background, uh, Bachelor of Commerce, uh, CPA, uh, have the geekiest award anyone can win in the world. I have a gold medal in accounting for sort of a thousand people when I, when I wrote that exam. Uh, did my CFA, and but then immediately uh, got into the mining business, fell in love with, with the mining business. Uh, so I've spent my whole career in mining. Um, fortunately for me, early on, uh, I was working for a company called Gold Corp, which is, became one of the larger gold companies in the world until it got bought out by Newmont. And Gold Corp created a company called Silver Wheaton, which was the world's first ever streaming company. And uh, I found myself in my mid-20s being a chief financial officer of, of that company. And we sort of built the streaming business model out to, as a team and we grew that company from nothing to a multi-billion dollar market cap over a period of a number of years. And uh, it was really only being used in the silver space. And uh, myself and my business partner, Dave Warham, who also worked at Silverweed, and we um, left that entity and we went and we started up Sandstorm Gold a number of years ago to be a gold streaming and royalty company. And so we've, we've been building it up to there. So I've, I've been in the streaming business model since it's existed on planet earth um, and have been effectively effectively in it for about 19 years now. Okay. And then tell us about Sandstorm, its founding and kind of its brief history and kind of, you know, where you are today as a, as a company. Yeah. So we started Sandstorm as just a shell company years ago and we went out and we found mining companies that needed capital and what we said to them was, hey, if uh, we'll give you money to build your mine, if you give us the right to buy a certain percentage of your gold, or in some cases silver, uh, for the rest of the life of the mine, and we'll buy it at an artificially low price. In some cases, the contracts we negotiated uh, were $400 an ounce. So, for example, under those contracts, we're buying gold now at $400 an ounce, and we're selling gold the next day at you know, $1,920 an ounce as of this morning. And so we're basically pre-purchasing the future rights to a certain percentage of all of their production for the entire life of the mine, including the exploration upside. And uh, and we get a massive margin on every single ounce. And so we went out when we started Sandstorm negotiating these contracts with various companies. Now, when we started the company, we didn't have any money. I mean, I was wealthy because I had made money in, in past jobs. Um, but we uh, we needed you know fifty million dollars to get the company going, and we we negotiated those contracts subject to financing. We went out and, and found the financing, and Sandstorm became a company. And then we've been iterating it ever since. We've we've grown, as you said, to uh, we've got two hundred and fifty streams and royalties on mines around the world, and like you said, forty of them are operating, and we've got uh, cash flow growing from over a hundred million dollars to over the next few years, we should have free cash flow four years from now of 170 million US dollars per year at uh, today's gold prices, which it's a pretty impressive company now. Yeah, no, this is very interesting. But you know, let's let's go back to the basics a little bit. I mean, you already explained how a stream works, but you know, there are also royalties and there are also streams. I mean, you know, some of the people on the call would be new to the sector. So can you talk about the, the kind of the basic differences between a royalty and a stream? Yeah, so there are some important nuances. Uh, so a stream and a royalty, both of them are contracts. Um, but the, the actual structure of the contract is different between a stream and a royalty. The tax treatment is often 
different between a stream and a royalty? I'll start with a royalty. A royalty is a little bit more simple. A royalty is just typically a royalty is a percentage of the revenue of the mine for the life of the mine period. So royalty contracts are typically 0.5% of the revenue or 1% of the revenue, or sometimes you have a great royalty and it's 2% of the revenue. In one of our contracts, we have one that's 4% of the revenue of an awesome mine. And so uh, the mine mines the mine. And at the end of every month, they go, what was the revenue from the product that the mine sold? And they multiply it by 0 0.04 and they, they cut us a check. Um, royalty contracts are considered in most jurisdictions part of the mine and mine ownership. So your contract and your royalty goes with the ownership of the mine by law, wherever that, that mine goes. A stream, on the other hand, is more of a contractual agreement to buy a certain percentage of the production of the life of the mine. And the stream percentages uh, can vary over the life of the mine. Often what you'll see is something that says, like, we're going to buy 10% of your production for the next 10 years, and then we'll buy 5% of your production for the rest of the life of the mine. And when we buy it, we will pay, let's say, 20% of the spot price of gold. So for example, you sign this contract and five years from now, the gold price goes to $3,000 an ounce. Every time that you're buying a contract or buying an ounce of gold every month, uh, they sell it to you for 20% of the spot price. So if gold's $3,000 an ounce, I would cut them a check for $600 for that ounce. And I would turn around on the same day and I would sell that ounce for $3,000 and my profit would be $2,400. So you're basically pre-purchasing an 80% margin on everything that is produced by that mine for the entire life of the mine. Streams tend to be uh, larger contracts than royalties. Like if you if you would say the average cash flow under the average stream cash flows more than the average royalties because the royalties tend to be smaller percentages. That one of the ways that we get streams versus royalties is actually quite different, and it's a nuance in our business model. Streams are typically a mining company goes to build a mine and they don't have enough money to build the mine. And so they need to either borrow money from a bank or they need to raise equity, but the equity capital markets aren't always there for them. Or often they come to us as streamers and say, hey, Sandstorm, will you write us a $100 million check to help us build the mine? And uh, we will give you this contract for the rest of the life of the mine. Royalties, on the other hand, typically come about because junior exploration companies or exploration people, uh, they have enough money to maybe do early stage staking, getting the legal rights to ground, kind of doing some rock chip sampling to see if there might be something there or soil sampling to see if it might be a, a good candidate to be drilled to see if there's an ore body there. But they're often not very good at raising money and they, and they can't raise the funds to do the actual exploration. So what they do is they get the, the rights to the property do a little bit of work, and then they knock on the door of a big company like Rio Tinto or, or Newmont or something like that. And they say, hey, I've got a property that looks like it's got a lot of stuff on it. We don't know. Why don't I give it to you? And you give me 2% of the revenue forever if you find anything. And so the, that prospector will get a royalty. And so the world is full of all these prospectors out there going out there and, and handing off their properties to bigger companies, but holding the royalty in case they're successful. And then when those companies are successful, companies like Sandstorm, we go out, we find that prospector, we buy the royalty from them, and we, we collect them. And so we've got this collection of royalties and, and streams in a portfolio. Interesting. So if I if I understand you correctly, um, 
you have a contract on a mine and if the ownership changes, that doesn't change anything for you. The new owners come in and, and then they start paying you. Or if yeah, con- some- exactly the contract's always tied to the mine and we'll actually get right. a, a mortgage charge against the mine. The same way a bank has a mortgage on your house, we have a mortgage right. on the mine. And if if so you know if somebody abandons the mine and but some new technology comes in and you know a new owner comes in with that new technology starts producing again, they also then start paying the royalties as the previous owners were. Yeah, it, it continues in, in perpetuity, right. exactly. So so advancements in technology, you know, essentially help uh, royalty companies. To a certain extent, I would say that uh, one of the ways that Sandstorm has constructed its portfolio, more so than its peers, is I'm a really, really big believer that there are economic cycles that we can't control. The price of, let's say we've got a gold stream, but it's a copper mine. So you've got a copper mine and we're buying the gold from it. And the price of copper is going to go up. It's going to go down depending on what the economy is doing. We can't really control that. And what we want to avoid is doing deals on mines where the cost of producing at that mine is high. So that if the copper price comes down and the mine starts losing money, they shut the mine down. We stop receiving our gold until either, like you said, there's a technological improvement or the economic cycle goes back up. We'd mm-hmm. like to avoid those situations entirely. So the vast majority of uh, Sandstorm's future production, um, over 60% of it is coming from mines that produce their primary product in the lowest cost quartile. So these are the lowest cost mines in the world that you know, 75% of all of their mines are going to shut off before those mines shut off. And some of our competitors will have their mines shut off before ours shut off. And so ours won't shut off. It's this big, long, stable, durable source of cash flow. So the technological improvements are not really that important to us in terms of turning back on mines because we've we've picked a portfolio of mines that aren't going to turn off in the first place for the most part. Right. Um, where technological improvements are useful is... Uh, if they can find economic ways to mine marginal ore. So you've got this known ore in a in a mine that you're like, yep, there's gold in that rock, but we're not going to make, we might not make any money mining it, so we're not going to try. We're going to focus over here where we know the grades are high and we're going to make our money over here. If Sometimes if there's a technological improvement, you can go, well, that's economic too, and they'll mine it too, and then we'll get our percentage of the stream of the royalty. Right. Right. Super interesting. Now, how do you go about building this portfolio? You know, how do you go about underwriting these deals? How do you how do you evaluate these projects? How do you, you know, how do you you know, you know, how do you underwrite IRRs on these on these kind of royalties and streams that you do? Yeah, it starts with the construction of the team and then the way we think as a team. Um, if you think about Sandstorm, yes, we're a public company, so we have to have things like accountants and and receptionist for an office and that type of stuff. But the vast majority of our employees and almost all of our compensation uh, is tied up in a combination of our corporate development team and our technical team. So we have a group of really highly experienced either ex-bankers or research analysts uh, from the mining industry who are out there scouring the world looking for mining companies that have good projects that need money. And they are sort of our, our corporate development leads. And then separately, we have a team of scientists, um, some of the world's best geologists and engineers, literally the head of our technical team. We went on a hunt to find the world's best person, and we we found the man running the metals and mining and petroleum department for the sister entity to the world, or the World Bank at the International Finance Corporation. 
uh, a master's in mining engineering math and master's in geology and was regarded as one of the best mining scientists, if not the best in the world. And we hired and paid him millions of dollars to come work for us and moved him from Washington, D.C. to Zanstorm. And so he heads up our technical team and we've hired a bunch of other scientists around him. And so our, our corporate development team is working with that scientific team. And every time our corporate development guys find something that they're like, hey, we think this is good. They go to our technical team and say, start your due diligence and working up to see if it makes sense for us to start negotiating deals. And then and then we'll approach companies and see uh, if there is a deal to be done where we think we're going to get a high rate of return. Now, the key to you're asking about like IRRs and those types of things. One of the keys of success for us to get a high rate of return, because we're 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 obviously seeking you know greater than 10% rates of returns in these transactions. The key to finding the ability to do that is finding mines that have above average exploration potential. And so you might have a mine that has a seven year mine life on paper, but it's only seven years because drilling is expensive and the ore body goes deeper and the mining company is not, it's a one asset mining company and they're not making any money yet and they don't wanna put the drill holes deeper until they're actually already underground. So it's cheaper to do it from it. And your geologists are going, the mine's probably gonna run for 30 years. We have no reason to believe it doesn't go past seven years. We just don't have the drill evidence yet. And so you can strike deals paying for seven years of production and then you get 30. And that's where our IRRs really, really go through. Right. So that correspondingly, you could find a mine and, and we see our competitors do this and it shake, I shake my head all the time, but uh, you can find a mine that's sort of just sitting at surface and you drilled it, you know that there's no ore past the bottom and there's no ore past the sides. You know exactly what it is. It might be a 12 year mine life. You know, there's not year 13 because you know there's no ore on either sides or front and back. There's no ore below. That's it. You get what you get. And if you pay for 12 years of production, all you're going to get is 12 years of production. And uh, those types of things just really don't interest us. So we, we've actually gone six years in a row now where uh, the number of ounces that we have in reserves uh, is the same at the end of the year or higher than what it was at the beginning, uh, despite the fact that we cash flowed enormous amounts during the year from the production because they produced and then they replace their reserves. And so we have as many or more ounces on the books at the end of the year than we did at the beginning of the year, with, and that's excluding acquisitions. So any acquisitions are accretive to that. Right. No, that's, that's. I mean, that's that's really interesting. And, you know, and, and again, unlike a mining company, you know, as you said, this is a business with a few business development executives, a few technical people. So from an OPEX perspective, you know, royalty companies and Sandstorm, you know, can make very high margins because, you know, again, you're, buying for 400 500 selling for 2000 and then the opex is not very high either yeah yeah exactly okay um can you uh talk about a deal maybe a specific deal something that you have in the portfolio today that you know that kind of worked out really well and maybe a deal that did not work out really well for uh, for sandstrom and kind of what were what were the big learnings there yeah we've got a lot of deals that have worked out really really well We've only had one deal that worked out poorly, and it was the most valuable lesson I've learned in my career. And fortunately for me, it happened at the very beginning of the creation of Sandstorm. So we were able to self-adjust. Sometimes uh, that's a good thing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll start with the bad one, and, and then I'll go to a, a good one or two. So the bad one was when we first started Sandstorm, 
Uh, I'm a big believer that the money that you're spending is shareholders' money to run the company and that you should be very, very frugal. And so we were incredibly frugal at the beginning of the company. Before we had a $100 million market cap, I took $0 in salary because I was like, I, I don't want to start draining the company's capital until uh, you know we make it to a substantial size and they, they can, you know, paying me is not a big deal. Uh, you know, we were subleasing the backroom offices of some other place and, and sharing offices. And it was all just very. And so when we would go to do due diligence, we would go. We, we didn't want to hire a team of scientists because scientists are really expensive to hire. And we didn't want this big G&A burn that was going to take the company down. And so we would hire consulting firms for due diligence. And uh, we we ended up investing in a mine in Brazil that the consultants we hired just were just terrible consultants and they missed all the risk issues and we lost all, all the money of that particular investment. And it was after that, that I went to the board and I said, okay, I know I've made a mistake being too frugal. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to stay frugal generally, but I'm going to go the exact opposite way with our technical team and scientists. I want the best scientists in the world. And I don't care if they cost tons of money because they're going to be worth their weight in gold. And, um, and that's when we literally went on a hunt and found a guy and, you know, paid him in, very large amounts of money to come build out his own scientific team within Sandstorm. And that team is the most expensive part of running Sandstorm to this day. But boy, are they worth worth their weight in gold. And, and that happened uh, 11 years ago. And since we've hired that team, we haven't bought a single thing that we've lost material amounts of money on in 11 years. Hmm. And, uh, and we've made a lot of money on, on a lot of deals. You know, you compare that to... Uh, uh, some deals we've done, you know, we've we've got some slides in our presentation that show how much we invested and how much money we've already pulled out and how much money the residual asset is is wow. worth on a present value basis. But you know, I think uh, one of the best deals we did, we spent fourteen million dollars buying a portfolio of royalties from tech a number of years ago. Uh, we've already sold a couple of those royalties for more than the entire fourteen million dollars, and the royalties that we're still holding. Are probably worth seventy or eighty million dollars. <laughs> so, <laughs> turn fourteen million into a hundred million. Uh, we did a deal once where we gave a company about thirty-five million dollar deals, uh, thirty-five million dollars for the deal, and uh, it was a seven-year mine life. Uh, we have pulled out already about a hundred million dollars from that deal, and the mine now has a twenty-year mine life. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still operating and we're still making money. Uh, and we have a whole number of, of other transactions uh, like that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and that's the thing about a royalty portfolio, uh, you know, with 250 assets on the books where you never know, you know, wh where the option value is on any of these assets. Right. I mean, unlike a mining company, which has one, two, three assets and, you know, kind of a strike at a mine or, you know, an, an environmental issue at a mine can really affect profits and, and, and revenue. Um, with this, um, you know, you're, you're so diversified across mines, across jurisdictions, across partners, uh, that, that I think all the diversification kind of probably helps you, uh, kind of maintain profitability across the cycle. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, yeah. the way I think about the streaming and royalty business model is like, if you take a step back, there are a lot of people that the reason you invest in mining is usually one of two reasons. Either you really believe that that particular commodity you're investing in is going to go up, like you're a gold bug and you think the gold price is going to go up, or 
you think there's expiration upside, right? I'm investing in this company because the, the market's assuming the mine is going to run for eight years and stop. And I talked to the geologist and I know it's going to run for 20 years and it's worth more. And it's either one or other or a combination of the two that you invest in a mining company. Right. The problem with mining companies is that there are so many things that can go wrong in running a mine, right? You can have political unrest, you can have social unrest. I mean, the number of times that locals block roads and shut mines down. I have friends that, you know, I run in the mining industry, a bunch of my closest personal friends are CEOs of mines, and I'll be sitting there having a beer with one of them while the, the road is being blockaded to their mine and they're like almost crying. <laughs> it's, it's just, there's nothing they can do because what happens is you can't lay off all of your staff and shut your mill down, uh, you've got to be operational ready until that blockade is going. So you're still operating with about 80% of your costs right. and zero percent of your revenue. And so you're bleeding capital. And so, but then there, there are fires, there are floods. I mean, the number of times that we've had seen mines flooded out that stops production for two months until you can pump out the pit or you can pump out the underground. And, right. and during those periods of time, your revenue goes to zero and your costs stay what they are. And so, you know, a mining company, if you're thinking like this, this was going to be my cash flow on a monthly basis every month for 12 months, your cash flow goes like this, this, then negative, <laughs> negative, right. and this. And the right. actual average is much smaller than what you thought you were going to get. In a streaming and royalty company, we either get the ounces or we don't get the ounces, there's never a negative, right. ever. So we have this portfolio of things where some, some are doing this and some are doing this, but the portfolio just keeps doing this. Yeah. And it's just so much more stable. We have all the reasons to buy a mining company, including the, the price upside, gold prices go up, we make more money. The expiration upside, if they find more ounces, we get more ounces. And almost none of the downsides that are so commonplace in mining. And so if, if you track the GDX or in a basket of mining companies performance over a 10 year period relative to a basket of royalty companies, you will never find a 10 year period where mining companies have outperformed royalty and streaming right. companies ever. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 we saw that over the last last 10 years. Yeah. So uh, Sandstorm itself, you know, is is a much different company today than it was two years ago. I mean, you've essentially transformed the company by doing two acquisitions last year, Nomad and Basecore. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, you essentially made Sandstrom into a mid-cap company from kind of a small cap company uh, and, and, you know, diversified the portfolio and kind of uh, up the quality of the, of the assets. Uh, but that's also led to, um, you know, some issues, right? Kind of new shareholders, debt, et cetera. So I think it would be interesting for the, for the viewers to just kind of, you know, if you could talk about uh, how the company has changed over the last um, over the last year and a half, and kind of what what the complications were uh, with with that change. Yeah, so about a year ago, uh, we acquired uh, two of our competitors, and the ones that we acquired were ones of very long life assets, very low cost operations. And in about about forty percent of the value that we acquired is in things that are being built now, so mines that are in construction now on you know multi generational mines. So what we did is sort of we bought the future of Sandstorm and we bought our growth last year. Uh, it was a billion dollars worth of transactions. The way we paid for it was a combination of equity uh, and debt, and some of the equity that we issued to 
you know, went out to general shareholders and, and, and shareholders of those companies. We bought you know, some of them, the little guys, retail shareholders sold their shares quickly. And so we had a little bit of share price uh, pressure when we announced the transactions. There always is a bit of merger art stuff when you're taking right. over a public company. Um, and then some of the competitors that we bought had strategic shareholders. So, for example, Glencore, uh, which is one of the world's largest mining companies, was a shareholder of Basecore. They owned 50% of them, and they received some Sandstorm shares in the transaction. And Yamana, which had recently got bought up by Pan American, was a large gold mining company, and they were a strategic shareholder of Nomad, Nomad being the other company we bought. So we bought Basecore and Nomad. Each had strategic shareholders. Each strategic shareholder received shares of Sandstorm. And uh, just over the last three months, two of those strategic shareholders who are not natural long-term shareholders of Sandstorm, there's no reason why they would buy a base metal mining company out of Switzerland would own Sandstorm shares, um, uh, sold their Sandstorm shares. So we've absorbed $100 million worth of net selling pressure in the market just over the last three months when, when volumes are pretty low. So our share price has really been under pressure from that. Those blocks have now finally and fully cleared the market. So that's done. And I think the share price is really uh, ready to spring back. The, the other part of the transaction that we paid for was with debt. And so we, uh, between the debt that we took on, plus debt that Nomad had when we bought them, that Nomad owed $150 million. So our debt that we took on to buy them, plus their debt added equal to about $625 million which is quite a bit of debt. Um, and so we've basically just for the last year been stocking down uh, all cash flow available to us uh, to take that debt down. So we've got it down. Uh, I checked our numbers just this morning. We've got it down to $460 million US from 625. So it's come down uh, massively. And what we're telling our shareholders is with interest rates as high as they are, like interest rates are very high right now. Um, we just wanna use all of our available cash flow to, to buy down debt, maybe buy back a few shares, and um, and so we're doing that. So three and a three and a half years from now, our expectation is that Sandstorm will be a, a totally debt-free company, um, and and all of our cash flow will be available for either growth or or returning to shareholders at that point. And also, it turns out at that point, a bunch of the things that we just bought turn on the mines turn on. And so three and a half years from now, you go, okay, Sandstorm will be a debt-free company, and their production will be thirty percent higher. The free cash will be $170 million a year US and it's kind of off to the races and it's uh, it's an incredible company. So we're in this transition period right now and it's, it's a really exciting future. Yeah. So from a capital allocation perspective for the next three years, what you're saying is all kind of free cash flow will go into debt repayment. Yeah, most, most of it. That's the plan. Uh, yeah. If we find an unbelievable acquisition and we're like, hey, we'll pause the debt repayment to buy this thing, we'll consider it. But we're being super, super picky because at where interest rates are, it's really, uh, it's really hard to argue with, you know, saving saving interest where where interest rates are right now. So that repayment is definitely the plan. One one thing that people miss is uh, we have a portfolio of loans that we have made to other mining companies. So sometimes when we went out and bought a stream, we'll be like, here's a hundred million dollars. Uh, and we'll give you a $20 million convertible debenture or, or loan to talk you up so you don't need to talk to the banks who are trying to compete with us to uh, prevent us prevent you from doing a deal with us. And so we, we've got this portfolio of loans that is yielding us uh, um, about 6 to 7% uh, interest on a base when you compare it to the 
uh, present value of the, the book value on our, our books. And that, that's about $240 million. So even though we have $460 million of debt where we've got interest going out, we've got interest coming in from a portfolio of $240 million for the things that offsets quite a bit of that. Okay. Nope. That's, that, that sounds, that, you know, that sounds pretty good. Um, and, you know, over the next few years, how do you expect the industry to evolve? I mean, I mean, so far, you know, you know, we see kind of Franco, Wheaton, Rollgold as kind of the larger companies, and there has been a bit of M&A, so there has been a bit of consolidation where, you know, you've bought Nomad and Basecore and, you know, Triple Flag has bought uh, Mavericks. Uh, how does this, you know, does that mean uh, competition is higher, competition is lower, the industry is more disciplined? I mean, just maybe talk about the industry itself and and, and and how competitive is it at this point in time? Yeah, there was a while there where it was very competitive. Um, but I think that a combination of uh, a Cisco, Sandstorm, and Triple Flag have all matured our businesses respectively. Like we've all really improved our businesses over the last few years. And I think we're all pretty happy with our businesses. We, we each feel like Sandstorm, we don't feel the need to be aggressive on pricing and on buying anything new. Um, and we think we feel our competitors sort of feel that way as well. Again, when you take out base core is gone and they're not a competitor anymore. Nomad's gone. They're not a competitor. Maverick's gone. They're not a competitor. There really is no material company below the size of, of Sandstorm until you get down into like tiny little companies, like $200 million market cap things. And so I think the level of discipline we're seeing behind the scenes uh, by the six of us is is much higher. Competition is a little bit lower. Uh, in terms of, to answer your question of where do I see it going, I do think that there will be a little bit more consolidation. It's really hard to pick and understand exactly because there's so many uh, social issues and market pricing issues, uh, which companies will consolidate. But I definitely think over the next five years, you're going to see six companies turn into uh, four or five. Right. Okay. No, that's, that's, that's very helpful. Now, um, you know, we, we have a question from, from one of the, from one of the audience members and, you know, he's asking, uh, can you keep the gold that you get from these streams or do you, or do you sell it right away? Absolutely. In fact, um, you know, on our balance sheet, it's not unusual over quarter end to see uh, a little bit of gold there uh, in inventory. Sometimes that's because, you know, if the gold price dropped, a lot right before quarter end, you know, where you know, most companies are tempted to sell it so they can jack up their earnings, like show the most gold sold. And, and we're more methodical about the business and we'll go, no, I don't like the gold price today. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be higher next month and we'll hold, we'll hold gold sometimes. Okay. Okay. Very helpful. And, you know, the other question is, you know, is just in the price of gold and kind of what that does to a lot of the mines that are not, not, uh, you know, economical right now. Uh, you know, and just how much of your portfolio would be economical if gold prices were to go to, you know, $2,500, $3,000. But maybe, you know, before we get to that, that, that answer, maybe let, you know, you know, let's talk about gold. You know, I know you're on the, on the board of the, uh, of, of the gold council. Uh, Yeah, the world gold council, yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, you know, I can, I can talk about from an, from an investor's perspective, kind of my, reasons for owning gold and owning sandstorm uh, as a proxy for gold. Uh, and then, you know, hope, you know, you can uh, kind of talk about, you know, from your perspective, you know, your view on gold, uh, you know, from here. Uh, so from my perspective, you know, I'm a bottom-up stock picker. And, you know, for me, um, 
you know, the basic reason why I own gold is because there's a lot of macroeconomic uncertainty, right? I mean, we used to talk about, you know, millions and now we talk billions and trillions and nobody flinches an island, right? Um, you know, you know, deficits here, deficits there, dollar, you know, printing like, you know, like no tomorrow, you know, a lot of my value investing friends would hold cash, right? And, you know, they say, you know, this is what we use, you know, you know, in case something happens. And, you know, cash, you know, fiat is is being debased every day, right? So the way I think about gold is gold is essentially a zero coupon bond in its own currency controlled by nobody. So essentially, you know, you can buy US dollars or you can buy Canadian dollars or, or euros or yen, or you could buy gold, right? And in US dollars, you would get a yield, um, but you would also get a central bank that 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 is going to keep printing. You would get a government that's going to keep running deficits. With gold, you get no control. It's an outside the system asset. And then you get uh, supply increases at about one and a half or 2% a year, right? So that's that's kind of the basic basic reason why I like gold. I mean, if, you know, if real rates are declining, if, if, if the dollar is declining, then gold should do really, really well. Right. And, and, you know, to my surprise, real rates have been increasing and are very, very high right now, but gold is flirting with all time highs. Right. And I think that's, that's very, very telling. That's, that's very telling. Right. I mean, yeah. so now, so now imagine that real rates are declining, dollar starts declining and gold starting from here, uh, I think has a lot of upside, but again, I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not an end of the world gold bug investor. I'm just saying, you know, I don't understand everything that's going on, this QE, QT, all of that stuff. I'm a bottom-up stock picker. Can I have an asset that I can allocate 10, 15% of the portfolio to that can be a diversifier for my 85% kind of long only equity portfolio. And, you know, as you go, you know, historically, as you as you kind of look at different periods where you know inflation was high, real rates were low, dollar was declining, you see that gold and gold equities uh, act as a as as a really good hedge to a bottom up equity portfolio, and kind of that's my reasoning for for kind of being in the sector, uh, and you know to you know why not just own gold, right? And and I do own some gold personally, you know, physical gold, but from a portfolio perspective, I also want some yield, right? And you know, Sandstorm is a dividend-paying company. So, with 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 Sandstorm or a royalty company, I can hold gold, get a dividend yield, and get optionality. So that's kind of why I own it. And but, you know, let's let's kind of hear your perspective because I think you're probably closer to it than I am. Yeah, I think one of the benefits of being on the World Gold Council is I get to see a lot of what's actually happening around the world behind the scenes uh, and getting data at the central bank levels. And we actually have a division within the World Gold Council that sits down with central bankers and, and talks to them. And so we get a really good feel for, for what's going on. It's very, very clear to me, more so than at any other point in my lifetime, uh, and perhaps ever, uh, at least in modern history, that central bankers around the world are uh, trying to find ways to build a world financial system that is not solely based on the U.S. dollar, because historically the U.S. has, uh, and it's, it's been fantastic for the U.S., the U.S. has built a financial system, uh, including payment rails in the U.S. dollar, where people will put their foreign currency reserves in U.S. dollars, or countries will, 
And then if you fall afoul of the US and you don't do exactly what they say and they put sanctions on you, they have the right to freeze your foreign currency reserves. So as a country, you're saving in US dollars, then you can lose your savings if you piss off the US. And, uh, you know, that's fine if you're Canada and we're, you know, we're going to have a great relationship. We're not worried about the U.S. ever freezing our foreign currency reserves. But it's not great if you're Brazil or if you're China or if you're Russia, for example, which just had all their U.S. foreign currency reserves, or if you're Belarus or, or, or any of these other countries. And there's about half the world who is not really wanting to take that risk anymore. And we're starting to see those central banks uh, decrease their exposure to the U.S. dollar and buy gold. Right. And and when that happens, it's going to put a long term. If this if this continues for the next twenty years, it's going to put continuous downward pressure on the value of the U.S. dollar, and it's going to put continuous upward pressure on the price of gold. So I'm fundamentally bullish on gold uh, for the very long term. The gold uh, tends to, on average throughout history, go up with inflation because you know it's not being printed the way currencies or via currencies are being printed. But I think we're going to see golds go up with inflation plus up with this fundamental buying central bank demand uh, for the next couple of decades. And so uh, I think you would go gold is a smart asset class to have in your portfolio because it's it's got fundamental reasons why it should do well. But then you layer in the fact that gold on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis typically trades inversely related to everything else that's in your portfolio. So it gives mm-hmm. you a better risk-adjusted rate of return on a portfolio basis. A lot of really smart portfolio managers use it that way. Um, but then you go, okay, if you, if you made the decision to put gold in your portfolio, why would you not, instead of just owning a bar of gold that's just going to trade based on the price of gold, why would you not buy through a streamer gold in the ground where there's actually the right to have the expiration upside if other gold is found? Right. So I'm buying this one ounce and I'm paying for it on a present value basis for what it's worth on the day that it's going to come out of the ground. But that one ounce might turn into three ounces. <laughs> yeah. and, and so you get this much, much higher yield, in a, but still in a, a safe investment vehicle. So, you know, I, I do think gold should be in portfolios, but goodness, if you're going to put gold in your portfolios, I don't know why you wouldn't just go and pick three streaming and royalty companies and just, you know, divide your gold allocation to the three of them and just, uh, you will outperform the price of gold. Which is exactly what I do. So I own I own three in total. Um, there you go, <laughs> including including Sandstorm. So so the question that comes from that is, um, you know, somebody's asking. So if gold prices do go up, you know, say they're kind of twenty five hundred dollars, you know, an ounce. What does that mean for your portfolio, for your cash flows, and for the optionality that you have in the in the portfolio? Yeah, it's a great question. So if gold goes to $2,500 an ounce, obviously we'll get a, a 25% increase in our, our revenue and cash flow. So that's fantastic. But uh, like you said, we had 250 streams and royalties, 40 of them are producing. That means 210 of them are not. And so when, when commodity prices are high, investment dollars into those 210 that are not start increasing. If it's a development asset, it's more likely to get developed and turned on. If it's an expiration asset, it's more likely to have expiration dollars put into it. And so all of this other stuff in our portfolio that currently has no value, I mean, everyone's just valuing this based on our, our current cash flow and our expected future cash flow. Uh, all of a sudden, you start having mines turning on. And so when, you know, when I said we're going to have $170 million a year of free cash flow at today's gold prices, you know, that 170 goes to you know, whatever the number is, 220, 230 million. And then all of a sudden, you get these surprises. 
and other minds start turning on. And so 230 goes to 240, 250, 260. And, and so we do have a lot of uh, upside optionality that way. Right. Interesting. Uh, we have another question. Uh, and it's just about the uh, the discount that you trade to your peers. Um, so what what do you think the discount is uh, currently and kind of, you know, maybe I'll add on to it, you know, how and when do you, would you expect it to close? Yeah, so I'd say, I'd say our closest peers uh, in the mid-cap space are Triple Flag and Cisco. And if you go back uh, just over a year ago, we were trading at a higher premium in the market, a higher price to nav multiple than either of them. So our, our nav multiple was higher than, than both Triple Flag and Cisco. Uh, and then we made those acquisitions. We issued all of those shares. And those shares have just been hitting the market and like pounding our share price down relentlessly over the last year. I think most of that is done. And I've noticed over the last month, if you kind of go back and just analyze last month, we've started to outperform uh, Triple Flag and Cisco. So that selling pressure is over and we're starting to revert that. And I literally just think uh, time will allow us to bring our debt down and to allow us to go find buyers now that the sellers are done. And, and I do think the share price will just revert and uh, we'll trade back up to their multiples. Yeah, no, super. Um, I'm, I'm just gonna ask everyone on the call, uh, you know, feel free to kind of type out your questions and, you know, I'll be happy to to ask. Um, uh, you know, we have no more questions in the queue. Uh, so so I'll just kind of go on and ask, uh, ask Nolan a question myself. Uh, you know, when you when you kind of talk about the portfolio, two hundred and fifty mines, you know, forty year cash flow generating, uh, do you um, how do you think about kind of transacting them? I mean, would you? I mean, for example, you, you know, you have debt, but you also have a lot of assets on the balance sheet, right? I mean, uh, people that are looking at your debt are you know not really paying attention to these loans that you have to the mines and these royalties that you have that are that are currently cash flow uh, cash flow generating. So, I mean. You know, you could technically speaking sell some assets and kind of pay down a lot of debt if you if you wanted to, if you had to. Um, how do you how do you how do you kind of think about that scenario? Yeah, that's actually a fantastic question. Um, we right now are in the process of internally looking within that, not within the forty, but within the two hundred and ten things that are not producing uh, and not cash flowing. We're actually in a process of looking through that and going, is there any logical buyers out there for anything in here that would have substantial value that we could sell for cash and, and pay down debt? So we're actually going through that process right now. Um, generally speaking, as a streaming royalty company, as a growth company, when we buy things, we don't like to sell them. Right. Um, but when it, with interest rates where they are, we're giving some consideration to it. We're not not seriously considering selling anything that's that's cash flowing at the moment, though. Okay. Okay. And then uh, just one more on the alignment of incentives. Now, you know, you founded the company, you are a big shareholder. Uh, can you talk a bit about, you know, the ownership that the management has in the company and kind of how everybody gets compensated? Yeah. So I'll talk, talk mostly about uh, me. Happy to talk more about other people in, in details, but um, so my base salary is about 400,000 US dollars a year. I, I live here in Canada and uh, 56% marginal tax rate jurisdiction. So I take home about $180,000 a year. Uh, and, and every all of my compensation outside of that is variable, the vast majority of which is uh, stock-based. So either restricted share units that have invested or, or stock options, those types of things. 
but when I being a founder of the company, I put my life savings into Sandstorm at the time. And so I have a, a large share position. And uh, in fact, just in the last year, because our share price has been under pressure, I went out and borrowed, this is maybe not super wise, but I went out and borrowed two and a half million dollars and invested two and a half million dollars of my own money in buying Sandstorm shares this year. Sandstorm is now 70% of my net worth. And I was running the numbers the other day. My net worth goes up or down $3 million for every $1 change in Sandstorm share price. So if you compare that to my my uh, after-tax take-home, it works out to something like a $1 change in Sandstorm share price is equal to 18 years of my after-tax base salary. <laughs> so <laughs> there, you know, there's some CEOs out there who are running these lifestyle companies where they're like, oh, I don't really care if the share price goes up or down. I just want to collect my salary next year. I do not care about my salary. I just want the, right. I just want the share price to go up. Yeah. And, and, and does this permeate throughout through the organization? Yeah, we have minimum share ownership rules for all of our senior management of three to five years, depending on their position. Same for the board. Um, our uh, our corporate development team, we tend to give them more share-based compensation because we want them to really be motivated to uh, you know do smart transactions and have the value of the company go up. Our uh, our technical team, it tends to be more fixed, high salary uh, with less incentive because we. Uh, and then we'll give them maybe some restricted share units, but we we don't want them to be incentivized to do deals. Like we don't want them thinking, hey, I'm going to get a bonus and and stuff like that at the end of the year if we do a bunch of deals, because we don't want them to be incentivized to say yes to things just to get their bonus. We want them to be methodical and thoughtful scientifically. And if they think that something is risky, we want them to tell us don't do it. And so we, we compensate them quite differently. Okay. And I guess I guess the last question from my perspective, um, on your on your shareholders, on your on your board, um, I mean, can you just talk a little bit about um, if everybody's supportive, if you know, just just your kind of your bigger shareholders, um, what 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 mandate um, kind of have they given you, and kind of what do they like to see the company in five years or ten years? Yeah, we've got a great board. We just added a, a new board member, uh, Ila Flavesque, at our last AGM. She used to be the CFO of of Cisco Gold Royalties, one of one of our competitors. So, brings a lot of uh, useful uh, and thoughtful insight there. The board gets along very, very well. Shareholders are are so very supportive of the board. I think at our last AGM, shareholders voted ninety nine point three percent in favor of me and very high for everybody else as well. So it's, uh, yeah, everybody's on the same page and shareholders and supporting board. Okay, no, super. Uh, unless there are any other questions from from the audience, you know, that's that's all from my perspective. Um, 